even though he was a tough guy he was, and he was a big tough guy um Larkin had this very kind of sensitive side he loved Shakespeare for example and he loved quoting Shakespeare during his, his speeches so he, he has this kind of messianic appeal what Larkin says when he becomes a union organizer is not just from economic benefits but he says it's a miracle. He says to employers, you will no longer crucify Christ in Dublin. That's Irish historian John Dorney. He discussed the Dublin lockout of 1913 at a recent meeting of the Nova Labour Book Club. The Dublin lockout was a major industrial dispute between approximately 20,000 workers and 300 employers, which took place in Ireland's capital city of Dublin. Often viewed as the most significant industrial dispute in Irish history, it lasted from August 26, 1913 to January 18, 1914. The central issue was the workers' right to unionize. John Dorney is the author of The Civil War in Dublin and Peace After the Final Battle, the story of the Irish Revolution. John's father led the Irish Teachers Union for 25 years. And on Labor History in Two, the year was 1937. That was the day known as among the darkest days for labor, the Memorial Day Massacre. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on this week's Labor History Today. Here's the show. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Labor Book Club. It's great to see you all. I'm Virginia Diamond. I'm really excited to introduce our guest speaker. His name is John Dorney, and he is an independent historian, and he is the editor of this incredible website, which is called The Irish Story. So you can find it at theirishstory.com. And I just want to say that I got his, well, these two books that he wrote. This is one called The Civil War in Dublin. And this is one called Peace After the Final Battle. And they're the best history books that I've ever read. They are readable. I couldn't put them down for one thing, but they're also incredibly informative. They're complicated. They're very, their interpretations are fascinating. And I think you just learned so much about Irish history during this really interesting period of time of the early 20th century. So I want to just recommend these books and rec- recommend the website. And so I am I'm beyond excited that he was kind enough to come and speak to us because of his expertise. And if you look at the website, it, the topics are the 1916 rising, the Irish Civil War, the 1913 lockout, which, are, uh, which is the, the backdrop of this strumpet city. So at this point, what I'd like to do is just turn it over to John to talk to us about, about this, these topics. So John, I will turn it over to you and you can share your screen if you want. Thank you for coming. And also tell us a little bit about yourself if you want. You covered most of it, to be honest. You covered the most important things. And yeah, thanks very much for inviting me. And I'm really happy to, to talk to you about Irish history and about the lockout. Virginia might've mentioned that my dad was general secretary of the Teachers Union of Ireland for many years as well. So it's in my blood, this story as well. But without further ado, I think I'll, I'll get on with the talk. I won't talk for too long because hopefully we can have a bit of back and forth. This is the, the one on the right, Virginia, isn't it? Yeah, that's the one. Okay, so... 
the lockout, the great strike of 1913, is what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk for hopefully about 20 minutes, we've decided. But before we start, just to set the scene, the term the lockout comes from the fact that it wasn't just a strike. It was also a collective action by the employers to lock out, which was the slang, to sack anybody and to prevent anyone from working, not only if they were a member of the union involved, the Transport and General Workers Union, but if they associated with anybody who was. Now, what this meant was any worker in Dublin had to take an oath not to not only not to join the transport union, but not to associate with anyone who did. So it was an act of great solidarity that up to 20,000 workers refused to sign this and they all ended up either on strike or locked out. Now, before I start, spoiler, as we say nowadays, the lockout ended as a defeat for the union. But it's not really remembered in that way. It's remembered today as the founding myth of Irish labour. Why? Because the strike was so bitter and so long and so costly for everybody involved and so bloody also in, in human lives that once Irish independence came, which was about 10 years down the line, no one ever tried to make it illegal to join a union again or no one ever tried to lock them out again. That just wasn't, it wasn't something that was going to happen again. So even though it was a defeat, it's remembered as a victory, which might be strange. There's also people that invest a lot more in it. There's a lot of complicated things because it happened at the same time as the struggle for Irish independence was just starting. So it's mixed up with that. And many, some of the participants ended up fighting for Irish independence. But some of the other participants who lost their jobs ended up in the British Army in the First World War and died in things like the Battle of the Somme in 1916 or in Gallipoli fighting Turkey and so on. Uh, so it has a quite complicated legacy in that way. And one other thing I should mention about the memory and how it's been recast over the years is that after Irish independence, in the decades after Irish independence, there was a lot of let's say it wasn't a great success economically speaking for many decades that many people hoped it would be. And many people coming from a left-wing direction wanted to criticize the nationalist kind of mythology of the founding of the state. And they saw in the lockout kind of another vision. So they, they, want, they wanted to promote a narrative whereas the workers were socialists, they were union members, so they weren't interested in national independence and get, uh, the rebirth of Celtic civilization and things like this. So it's been remembered in that kind of light as well. But as with all historical events, people do with them according to what they want to do in the present as much as about the past. Okay, but moving on. So briefly about the context. In, 1930, in 1912, the British Parliament passed the Home Rule Bill, which is a granting self-government for Ireland. Now this was opposed by uh, the Ulster Unionists, the mostly Protestant population in the north of Ireland in arms. They formed a militia. Elements of the British Army just after the lockout actually uh, refused to obey orders to put it down. And this kicked off a crisis that lasted about 10 years. But in 1913, Ireland was under British rule. It was part of the United Kingdom, but it wasn't a normal part of the United Kingdom. So it wasn't ruled in the same way as London or Manchester or Glasgow. It was ruled by a chief secretary who was appointed by the British government in Dublin Castle. There was an Irish executive in Dublin Castle, separate from Britain. It had an armed police force, unlike the rest of the United Kingdom, except in Dublin, where there was an unarmed police force, Dublin Metropolitan Police. But the police forces and obviously the military were under the control of this administration in Dublin Castle. So whereas there had been democratic reform, so in the 1860s, the majority of men, property holding men, got the right to vote for the first time, um, no women until 1918. Uh, in the 1880s, this had been extended. In 1898, most people who lived in cities could vote in municipal elections. Those bodies, those people that they elected and those bodies that they elected had very little actual power because the power was still vested in the executive of Dublin Castle which was appointed from London. So that's just changing 
but it's a halfway house. The other thing that's changing is that if you go back, say, a century before the lockout, almost all the land, almost all the wealth in Ireland is held by people of the Protestant religion, which in Ireland has the added subtext of being, not in all cases, but has the connotation of being uh, pro-British or descended from British and so on. Um, now, the other context, though, which is possibly as relevant or certainly as relevant to what we're talking about today, is it was also a time of labour militancy. It was when the first modern unions were being formed. Now, it's a lot of this is the work of Mon Man, we're going to talk about Jim Larkin, but it's part of a general trend because you have the modernization of the Irish economy, you have a lot of emigration, a lot of also land reform, but people are leaving the land, they're going to work in cities, and they're working as unskilled laborers, and they need what are called at the time industrial unions. So uh, things that are influenced by the ideas of syndicalism, of one big union, where all the workers, not just in one trade, one craft, like before, but in all industries would unite in one union so they could help each other by sympathetic strikes. And that's central to what we're talking about today. But it's not just Dublin in 1913. There's lockouts and sympathetic strikes from about 1909 onwards. So it's an ongoing thing. It's also part of a wave of labour militancy across Europe and in Britain itself. For example, there's a massive railway strike in Britain and also in Ireland in 1911. Now, moving on. Yeah. So this... Dublin was a city of about half a million people at the time, if you count Dublin city and county. And it's a city of great contrasts. Like Dublin had previously been a capital city before 1800 when its parliament was abolished and replaced by, as I said, a British administration in Dublin. It had seen no real economic growth since that time. A lot of people had flocked to the city from the land, especially in the decades of the famine, but also subsequently. But there was no massive industrial growth to give them jobs. And the result was massive inequality. Now, what you on the left is the Dublin poor, and they look appropriately miserable. And on the right-hand side, we see one of the society balls. So you have a man in a ceremonial British uniform, the famous red coat, you have the ladies in their fine dresses. And this is a stylized kind of representation because there was middle class emerging as well. But the real difference was between the unskilled workers, the, skilled, the workers who weren't part of a craft union, didn't have a trade, who made their living in things like uh, working on the docks. So the Irish term is docker. I believe in America, the longshoreman is the normal term and they were typically lined up and recruited by day they didn't have any job permanency they didn't have any security and their wages were very low because there was a big pool of unemployed labor as well these are the famous dublin tenements now the tenements was the dublin word for slums um the one on the left hand side is a typical backstreet kind of slum so you see very poor quality housing um it was thought that one in five people in dublin lived in a one-room house. So this is big families, families of could be 10 plus in some cases, living in one room. About one in five people in Dublin lived in a house like that. Um, malnutrition is very common. Epidemic disease, very common. Uh, there was no sewerage in the slums. On the right-hand side, we see another typical kind of Dublin slum. And this is one of the great ironies of Dublin at that time. What these are is the old townhouses of the, the gentry of Dublin, the upper classes of Dublin of the 18th and early 19th century. Now, as those people fled the city centre, they fled out along the coast, along the new railway lines, they left their grand houses and they got taken over as slums. And typically, again, one family would be living in one room. And as you can see, typically they were in very poor condition. One of the things that happened during the lockout was that one of these collapsed on Church Street, which is in the north inner city of Dublin, killing a whole load of people. Now, class in Dublin... This is according to the 1911 census. I'll run through this quickly just to give us an idea of the state of the city. So 18,000 people were in the professional class. That means people with qualifications, white collar people. 23,000, the commercial class, which refers to people who own shops and so on. 
agricultural class in Dublin City, fairly small, but it, it includes people who are bringing in animals to sell at fairs and stuff, which was a feature of the city, even down to the 1960s. The industrial class, these are people in working in the factories in Dublin. There aren't a great deal of these, comparatively speaking, but there are factories in Dublin, things like Jacob's Biscuit Factory, the Guinness Brewery, the various distilleries. 18,000 domestic servants. So this is before people had fridges and, and things like this. Most families who were even middle class had a servant or two, and, and obviously the elite would have had many servants. Now, the important one here is the bottom one, though. By far the majority, as you'll see, is the indefinite and non-productive class. So there was no coddling language in those days. And these were people who were the unskilled working class, who, the people who, again, lived by casual labour. The people who weren't a member of a craft union, didn't have security in their jobs, and were often, especially in the case of the dockers, uh, recruited day by day. Now, into this mix of, Dub of Dublin, a city of great inequality, comes this man, Jim Larkin, big Jim, James Larkin. Now, James Larkin was born in Liverpool, like many Irish people, his parents has, had emigrated to Liverpool. And he grew up in, in tough conditions in Liverpool uh, as a docker again, uh, but he was self-educated, uh, a committed socialist. And one of the interesting things about Larkin is a teetotaler. Larkin was absolutely hostile to drinking of alcohol. One of the stories about Big Jim, as he's still known affectionately in Dublin union circles, is the dockers in Dublin used to be paid in the pubs. And this was an arrangement that employers would make with the publicans, because then the workers would obviously pay all their wages for drink and typically wouldn't go home to their wives and so on. So what Larkin, or so, or so legend has it, would do was walk into a pub with one arm along the bar and knock all the glasses off and tell the men to go home to their wives. So Larkin had this really strong kind of moralistic strain to him. But even though he was a tough guy, he was, and he was a big tough guy, um, Larkin had this very kind of sensitive side. He loved Shakespeare, for example. He used to carry around books with him. And he loved quoting Shakespeare during his, his speeches. So he, he has this kind of messianic appeal. What, Larkin's, what Larkin says when he becomes a union organizer is not just from economic benefits, but he says it's a moral thing. He says to employers, for example, you will no longer crucify Christ in Dublin. So it, it's about the morality of capitalism that Larkin has a problem with. Now, he came to Ireland to organize for the NUDL, which is National Union of Dock Labourers, but he had a problem with them because he organized a, a kind of unapproved strike down in Cork. And he founded, as a result, he broke away and he founded his own union, the Irish Transport and General Workers Union. Now, <clears throat> later on, this would have nationalistic repercussions, but that wasn't really Larkin's intention at the time. The problem was he was a militant and the union leadership in England didn't want him to, to be leading all these strikes. But Uni Larkin, although not like James Connolly, who I'll get on to, he wasn't a, a syndicalist in terms of ideology, but he was interested in this idea of one big union, organizing the unskilled workers and the big weapon that Larkin wanted to use to upgrade the wages and the conditions of unskilled workers was the sympathetic strike. So one group of workers, for example, dock workers goes out and strike. The men who, who uh, worked the lorries, at that time mostly horse-drawn, who worked the trucks, they go out and strike in sympathy. And this is Larkin's big tactic. And from 1911 onwards, especially, there's a wave of sympathetic strikes, especially in Dublin, where Larkin is based. And this is a famous picture of Jim Larkin. It's from actually from 1923. It's actually when he got back from America, but it's such a famous picture. And it, it does show Larkin's appeal as this kind of demagogue. He's raised above the crowd. His, his arms are raised above his head like a prophet, like a biblical, an Old Testament figure. And that's the way Jim Larkin was really seen at the time. 
if you read, for example, not only Strumpet City, but also Sean O'Casey, who knew Larkin, who was the playwright, he talks about how, how Jim was like a god to the workers. He showed the workers hope for a better life. That's what he said. And I should also add, sorry, before I go on to the, the bad guy of the story, uh, as well as the ITGW, there was a separate worker, a separate union that Larkin founded for women called the Irish Women Workers Union. At the time, the two were separate. Um, but Larkin was a believer in women's equality, he was a believer in suffrage for women. And another thing is that Larkin believed in lifting the cultural level of the working class. For example, the union purchased a park, Croydon Park and Dublin's north side, where there could be sporting and cultural events. So, you know, Larkin's not just a normal union leader. He's something more than that. Now, this is, if you like, the baddie of the story. William Martin Murphy is one of Ireland's first Catholic millionaires. So typically the upper classes in Ireland had been and still were to a large extent Protestant. So in some respects, the descendants of the conquerors of the 17th century. But that's not true for William Martin Murphy. He's part of a rising generation of Catholics and also an Irish nationalist. So William Martin Murphy had actually served in the British Parliament as an Irish nationalist from Cork, incidentally, which, for, which in, in Dublin is also a black mark against him. But uh, as well as the owner of the Dublin United Tramway Company, where the big strike happens, he's the owner of most of the most influential newspapers in Ireland, the Irish Independent and the Freeman's Journal. So just like perhaps certain people today, like Rupert Murdoch, for example, not only does he own like the means of production, to use that phrase, but also he owns most of the media. So he controls the message that people hear about it. Murphy is very much against Larkin from the start. And he says things about Larkin like he's a syndicalist, he's a communist. They generally didn't use that word that much at the time, pre-1917. He's a wrecker, he's wrecking Irish trade. There's certain people who write that Larkin's an Englishman. And of course, Larkin is, he happens to be born in England, but both his parents are Irish. He's an Englishman, he's bringing in foreign doctrines and so on. But the important thing that Murphy does, though, is he gets the employers of Dublin together uh, in an association and he sacks the tram drivers, the drivers from his company, who had joined the ITGW, Darkens Union. And here's the important thing. He impressed on the employers of Dublin to sack anybody who would not take this oath. They formulated an oath not to join the ITGW, but also not to associate with anyone who joined it. And this is like the opening shots, if you like, of the lockout. Some images here on the left-hand side is Dublin City at that time. It was a lot smaller than it is today. Um, the red lines are the tramway lines. So you can see that it's a really big, uh, it, it's a massive part of the city's infrastructure, even though it's privately owned by William Martin Murphy. Um, on the right-hand side, you can see Dublin Streetscape. This is a place called Rath Mines, and you can see the, the tram lines ubiquitous in the streets. Now, the strike and lockout starts when Larkin retaliates for the sacking of his members by calling a strike on the tramway company. Now, the, there's two demands, really. Excuse me. One demand is to reinstate the men who were sacked. And the second demand is, to, is for an increase in pay for the drivers. Um, the problem is that Larkin's members are actually a minority of the people employed. There's 650 drivers and he has 200 members. But very dramatically, what happens is on August late in August 1913, uh, August 24th, I think, Larkin's, the Larkin's affiliated drivers put on their red badge. There's a red hand badge of his union and they just walk off their trams. They leave them where they are. Um, the horse show, which was a, um, a show jumping event, was on in Dublin. It, was, it still is actually one of the big kind of upper class social events in Dublin. Um, this, the city briefly came to a standstill, but the problem was that Murphy was able to draft in drivers he was able to get the trams running again by that evening. 
fierce rioting ensued between the Dublin Metropolitan Police and the strikers. Now, initially, because uh, the union members tried to stop the trams from moving around the city, um, the weekend after the strike was called, so the strike was called on the Tuesday, on the Sunday, Larkin pledged to speak on O'Connell Street, Dublin's main street, which you'll see in the picture here. Um, it was banned by the authorities, the British authorities, the meeting. Larkin was smuggled onto O'Connell Street, disguised as a woman, appeared uh, to a crowd on O'Connell Street, you know, to great cheers, and the Dublin Metropolitan Police charged the crowd, and there was two strikers beaten to death in, in this riot. But after there was fierce rioting in the working class areas of the city throughout the night and the following days, including the police invading the tenements so the slums I showed and breaking up people's houses, including like the very few possessions that people had, like many journalists at the time commented, they broke the religious statues that the working class families would have. Um, the cartel of employees, as I said, they locked out up to 20,000 workers. Now, Larkin didn't have that many members. Larkin had, I think, in and around 6,000 members in Dublin at the time. The 20,000 refers to all the other unions in Dublin who refused in solidarity to take the oath. So this again goes back to the kind of symbolic power of the lockout. But what enabled Larkin and the union to keep the strike going was support from the British TUC, the British Trade Union Congress, who sent money and food ships for, to Dublin for six months. The food ships would sail up the River Liffey through the centre of Dublin and people would come and they would collect their food off them. The food would be distributed at Liberty Hall, which is the union headquarters, which is on just on the river. So it's an act of extraordinary solidarity from the British labour movement as well. And Larkin also goes on a tour of Britain at the time. And just a little anecdote about an event that occurs on Larkin's tour, because it will tell you something about the man's character, his hot-headedness, but also his, his passionate kind of nature. He's at a rally in London where he's, he's talking why people should support the strike in Dublin and why it's about it's about the principle of trade unionism and injury to one is an injury to all. And he gets heckled by some right-wing students, some Tory students, as they're called, from the Conservative Party, or supporters of them. And Larkin loses his temper. He, he jumps down off the stage and grips one of these students by the throat. And his wife, his long-suffering wife, screams at him, apparently, Jim, think, and, and Larkin relents and lets the guy go. But this is the kind of guy that Larkin is. Now, one of the criticisms, though, of Larkin is that he is so hot-headed and, one, and he left Ireland to go on this tour of Britain at the time. It was actually, he was also arrested and he was sentenced to seven months in jail after this event on O'Connell Street for disturbance of the peace. Um, he succeeded by this man, the man on the right, James Connolly. Connolly, just like Larkin, was born in Britain of Irish parents, in his case, in Edinburgh, in Scotland. And one of the things that Connolly and Larkin, but forever associated with Connolly, they found it after the big riots of the first weekend of the lockout was the Irish Citizen Army. But you may be able to see, it's not that clear, but the Irish Citizen Army was a, a trade union militia which was founded to defend strikers from the police. They later on participated in the insurrection of 1916. The banner there says, we serve neither king nor kaiser. So this is a reference to the First World War. But for the period, the time we're talking about, the Irish Citizen Army is a group of several hundred union members who go around armed with clubs and cudgels, hurling sticks. Hurling is an Irish sport played with a stick. Um, the other thing that's notable from the kind of the many months the strike drags on is that there's a thing called the Kitty Scheme. Now, the Kitty Scheme is proposed by a British socialist by the name of Dora Montefiore, so socialist, feminist, left-wing activist in Britain. It refers to taking children from the Dublin slums where they couldn't be fed properly during the lockout over to homes of labour sympathisers in England. And the union accepts this, and it was this had been a common tactic in strikes in Britain. But what's really interesting about it from an Irish point of view is this brings on the strikers the calumny of the Catholic Church. So the Catholic Church said they didn't want uh, children being brought from Catholic homes, being brought to Protestant homes or to atheistical socialist homes 
in England where they would be corrupted. And so the kiddie scheme, which is an act of, of charity proposed by Dara Montefiore, it ends in nothing. They actually back down because of the, they're afraid of the sanction of the Catholic Church, even at this period. As regards the government response, actually the British Prime Minister Asquith, who was a liberal, the liberals were one of the two British parties at the time, two main British parties, the more, the more left-wing one, let's say. Asquith tried to, inter, tried to arbitrate, but the party that refused arbitration was mostly Murphy, the employer. He said, I will not negotiate with this man, Larkin. This man is a wrecker. He's not a respectable representative of the workers. And Mark William Martin Murphy says, I will have three solid meals a day. Can Larkin's members say the same? So it, the idea is to starve the workers back into work. And so it goes on for six months. Tactically, the, the problem, there's two kind of critical things that the union can't do to, in order to win the strike. The one thing is they can't shut down Dublin Port. They're not able to, um, to close down Dublin Port because although many of the dockers did go on strike, what they referred to as scabs or black legs, so non-union labour, was brought in to replace them. So they weren't able to shut down Dublin Port and shut down the trade of Dublin. And the second thing, uh, Larkin was bitterly critical of the British Trade Union Congress, the TUC, for their refusal to call it a sympathetic strike. Now, my historians of this, for example, Padraig Yates, the Labour historian, will tell you this was very unfair because of all the TUC had done to actually support the strike. But Larkin was a hot-headed man. He was a passionate man. He made up his mind on things, and that was that. The TUC refused to call a sympathetic strike. Larkin denounced them. And the TUC, possibly linked event, the TUC said, we can't keep up support to Dublin indefinitely. And so in January 1914, hunger basically forced the workers to go back. Uh, and it's, it's interesting, again, the kind of language, like I talked about the, the kind of moral language that um, Irish trade unionists use at the time. Connolly said, for example, us workers have to go back down to hell. We have to feel the lash of the employer's whip on our back. He says, but never forget, you know, the fight that we've made. And so this, it, it, it does show the, the legend of the lockout is built almost immediately. This is it's a noble fight. And even though you lost, you still won. Um, Larkin left for America after the lockout, partly just as a kind of holiday but to, to recover his nerves. But the First World War broke out. He couldn't come back. Uh, Larkin associated in various uh, left-wing circles in America, but eventually got arrested in the Red Scare in 1919, 1920, and was held in Sing Sing jail for, for three years until he was deported back to Ireland. James Connolly continued with the Irish Citizen Army, got mixed up, or mixed up is the wrong word, but got associated with radical nationalists and was executed for his part in the 1916 uprising. So the armed uprising against British rule that happened three years later in Easter 1916. The ITGU was gradually, ITGWU was gradually rebuilt. In fact, it was many times the size after the First World War that it was before the First World War um, under the stewardship of a man named William O'Brien. Now the bitter kind of aftertaste of Larkin's career is that when he came back to Ireland in 1923, he wanted to take over the union again that he had built from this man, William O'Brien. And O'Brien wasn't having it. They fell out. Uh, Larkin split off and formed his own union, the uh, Irish Workers' Union. And the two didn't get reunited until after Larkin's death in the late 1940s. So it's a kind of very bitter aftertaste, actually. The interesting thing, and Larkin also, by the way, served as a... He, he was originally a founder of the Irish Communist Party. He left that. Later on, was briefly a member of Parliament, a TD, we say in Ireland, for the Labour Party on two occasions. Um, but his legend was built, really, in these years before the First World War. This is the... Easter Rising of 1916, which in which some of the strikers participated, especially, you know, James Connolly and the Citizen Army, I should say. Just briefly, before I finish, this, I think, from the centenary of the lockout, these are modern union banners in Ireland. Uh, on the left-hand side is a depiction of the riot on O'Connell Street in August 1913, and it talks about the lockout martyrs murdered on the streets of Dublin. James Nolan, James Byrne, and Alice Brady were the three strikers who were killed. And on the right-hand side, SIPTU, which is the 
ancestor of the ITGW, the, there was a number of amalgamations, but SIP2 was the, the modern day manifestation. And you can see the picture of James Larkin in his famous pose uh, with his arms raised. So the, Larkin, the lockout today, even though it's 100 plus years ago, it, it's still a very potent myth, a pot- and a myth in the positive sense, for Irish labour unionists. It's like the foundation, the great battle that was fought for the principle of union recognition, the principle of solidarity, the principle of the, the right to join a union. And that's what it means in kind of labour circles today. And finally, uh, Big Jim, James Larkin, uh, is commemorated in, in O'Connell Street at the very spot where that riot took place in this famous statue in the centre of Dublin. Okay, that's all I've got for now. Irish historian John Dorney, he discussed the Great Dublin Lockout of 1913 at a recent meeting of the Nova Labour Book Club, editing by Patrick Dixon. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labour History in Two. On this day in labour history, the year was 1937. That was the day known as among the darkest days for labour, the Memorial Day Massacre. For days, strikers had suffered arrests and severe beatings at the hands of Chicago police, who physically prevented them from establishing picket lines at South Chicago's Republic Steel. Joined by supporters from practically all walks of life, strikers decided late in the afternoon to march to the gates, determined to picket. For Michael Dennis, author of The Memorial Day Massacre and the Movement for Industrial Democracy, Southeast Chicago became a crucible in which a wide spectrum of social and political alternatives became possible. The Little Steel Strike was propelled by the realization that workers lived in a country dedicated to democratic freedom, but worked under conditions of near autocracy. Men, women, and children, black, white, and Mexican workers all chanted CIO, CIO, as they marched down Green Bay Avenue. The Chicago police waited for them, armed with revolvers, nightsticks, and blackjacks. Strikers defended their right to picket as police once again formed a solid line, preventing their passage. The police soon launched tear gas canisters and began firing into the crowd. The picketers turned away in a futile attempt to escape the staggering brutality. When the dust settled, 10 were killed, 30 more shot, 28 others hospitalized, with eight suffering permanent disability and another 20 to 30 injured. Virtually all those shot had wounds in the back or side. Michael Dennis notes the massacre cast the die for the strike. Collaboration between municipal officials, corporate leaders, and the military in suppressing the strike would go uncontested by federal authorities and cheered by middle-class opinion. The campaign to organize Little Steel had suffered a crushing blow. That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. And even better, if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, please like it in your podcast app and pass it along. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Special thanks this week to Nova Labor President Virginia Diamond, not only for permission to use some of the John Dorney Book Club discussion, but for personally handling, recording it, and getting us the file. Thanks, Jenny. 
Our music today is from a musical performance by Don Baker and Jerry Hendrick at the Sinn Féin organized 1913 Lockout 100th Anniversary Event in Liberty Hall, Dublin on March 2nd, 2013. We've got a link to the whole video. It's just under 10 minutes in the show notes. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and healthy, but do keep making history and see you next time. Thank you.